Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Tom Moran and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Richmond, Virginia. And I'm joined today by my partner in our Baltimore office, Cindy Rogers Ware. As always, we like to open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We ask that you pass along our contact info to any colleagues who you think might be interested in calling in or in checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of the prior 74 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms. That can be on the Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today or on our microsite at suretytoday.net. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise. We'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today's topic will be the Skolik decision and the surety's exposure to false claims liability. What comes next? I'll start with an overview of the False Claims Act and the general concepts at play, particularly as they might relate to surety exposure. Then Cindy will talk about the facts of the Skolik case and examine the recent summary judgment ruling issued by the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Then time permitting, we'll conclude with a conversation about what the decision may mean for surety's concern about False Claims Act liability in the future. So the, the Federal False Claims Act dates back to 1863 in the midst of the Civil War when there was a massive problem with contractors providing supplies or services to the Union Army that were of bad quality or not what was bargained for. To deal with that problem, the Lincoln administration passed a civil FCA, which is today codified at 31 U.S.C. Section 3729, and also a criminal FCA at 18 U.S.C. Section 287. Uh, the civil FCA provided for key TAM actions, uh, which are whistleblower suits. These could be brought by any private citizen who becomes aware of fraud against the federal government. The key TAM cause of action proved to be problematic in its early days, and because of abuses during World War II, its scope was cut back and it was effectively defanged. That trend then reversed course in the late 1980s, and now key TAM actions are highly prevalent. On top of that, non-QTAM actions, which are FCA actions brought directly by the government, have boomed since COVID after a steady decline in the middle of the last decade. As an example, in the fiscal year 2020, we saw the most FCA actions filed in history. And in, in fiscal year 2021, the U.S. government recovered over $5.6 billion, with a B, dollars in QTAM and non-QTAM actions, the second highest total ever. So it's not a stretch to say that we're in an era with an unprecedented level of civil enforcement of the FCA, and plaintiff's lawyers, of course, are always looking for new industries and theories where liability can be assigned and damages can be recovered. Before going into the particulars of what can constitute a valid claim under the FCA, it's worth taking a little time to discuss the mechanics of a QTAM action. In a QTAM action, a whistleblower or later files an action in the name of the government. That, uh, that complaint is filed under seal, 
and the copy is provided to the government, which then has 60 days to either intervene or decline to intervene. During that period, the government has full discovery powers. If it decides to intervene, it has primary responsibility for the litigation, including the power to settle. If there's an intervention and a resulting judgment or settlement, the relator can cover 15 to 25% of the overall proceeds, uh, plus attorney's fees and costs. If there is not an intervention, the relator remains the lead plaintiff and then will be entitled to 25 to 30% of the ultimate proceeds, again, with attorney's fees. There's also an incentive for a relator to act and act quickly. Uh, each violation is punishable with a civil penalty along with damages of three times the government's loss. So the relator cannot recover if the subject matter of the claim was publicly disclosed by someone else. With high penalties at stake and an incentive to move quickly, we've seen an uptick in FCA actions and the surety and construction industries are no exception. Now we'll look at how a cause of action under the FCA can be stated. A plaintiff has to allege that the defendant submitted a claim to the government, that the claim was false, and the def defendant knew the claim was false. Claim is a defined term under the FCA. It's defined as any request or demand, whether under a contract or otherwise, for money or property, and whether or not the, the, the government has title to the money or property. That is either presented to an officer, employee, or agent of the United States, or is made to a contractor or other recipient if the money or property is to be spent on the government's behalf or to advance the government program or interest, and if the United States government provides or has provided any portion of the money being demanded or will reimburse a contractor or other recipient for any portion of the money which is requested. So the, the classic claim in the construction industry would obviously be a, a pay application for progress payments. Knowledge is another defined term under the FCA and it exists where a person has actual knowledge of the information, uh, acts in deliberate ignorance of the truth or falsity of the information, or acts in reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of the information. There's no uh, no requirement of proof of specific intent to defraud or deceive. To prevent speculative claims and in keeping with the federal rules pertaining to fraud cases, a court must apply the strict pleading standard that requires a higher level of detail than most, most other civil cases. A plaintiff must state the time, place, and content of the false misrepresentations, the facts misrepresented, and the benefit retained by the defendant or given up by the government as a consequence of the fraud. So to put that another way, the plaintiff has to give specific facts as to the what, who, when, where, and how of the alleged fraud. The FCA case law has developed such that there are four main types of claim that we're concerned with. The first is a presentment claim. That's a knowing submission of a false or fraudulent claim for payment to the federal government. The second is a false statements claim, which is a false statement made with the goal of having a claim paid. The third is a conspiracy with another person to defraud the government in order to have a claim paid. And the fourth is a reverse false claim. And that's making a false record, excuse me, a false record or statement to conceal an obligation to pay money to the federal government as opposed to receiving money from the federal government. To give a few examples in the construction context of where FCA liability has been found, uh, we can have a pay application that overstates the work that was performed. There could be a pay app that falsely certifies that subcontractors and suppliers have been paid when they actually haven't been. A pay app could falsely state that the work is in conformance with contract specs, such as the use of wrong materials. 
a false information in a bid or proposal that allows a contractor to win a contract that otherwise wouldn't have won, and we'll touch a little more on that one later, uh, or pay applications that don't disclose that the contractor has failed to comply with applicable statutes or regulations. So importantly, those last two examples could be an example, uh, could each be examples of fraud in the inducement. When the government is fraudulently induced into entering a contract, every application for payment um, made under that contract that the government ultimately pays could be a separate violation of the FCA and subject to treble damages and penalties. And that's even the case when there is nothing fraudulent about the individual pay apps in and of themselves. There's a few additional concepts from FCA case law that are particularly relevant to sureties and the construction industry. The first is indirect presentment and its interplay with implied false certification. You might have listened so far and thought, how is this relevant to the surety? We're not making representations directly to the government. How can a surety ever be liable? But even if there isn't an express affirmative certification that's false, there can still be liability if the defendant doesn't disclose noncompliance with material statutory, regulatory, or contractual requirements that make those representations misleading. Materiality is an important factor here. If the fact concealed is one that the defendant knew the government would refuse payment on if it was aware at the time of payment, that's material, and it can be the basis for a false certification. The concept of indirect presentment speaks to the fact that the party responsible for the fraud may not be the one that actually submits a claim for payment to the government. This expands liability to someone whose conduct, conduct was a substantial factor in causing the submission of false claims. And the simplest example of that is where a party takes advantage of an unwitting third party or intermediary, such as a subcontractor that falsely states it complies with small business set-aside requirements and an innocent general contractor relying on those statements to, to request payment. Indirect presentment can also be found where the defendant was the driving force behind the scheme. And especially relevant to the surety are two additional forms of indirect presentment. A non-submitter can be liable where it agreed to take certain critical actions in furtherance of the fraud, or where the non-submitter continued to do business with an entity upon learning it was submitting false claims. It's uncertain from the case law whether something more than passive acquiescence is required to establish liability in, in those scenarios. The next important concept for sureties to know is the presumed loss rule and, the, and as it relates to the Small Business Jobs Act. Set aside contractual requirements for minority, woman, or veteran-owned small businesses, for example, are nothing new. But for a long time, the FCA was not an effective means of enforcing those requirements. That was because the existing penalties weren't a sufficient deterrent, uh, existing penalties weren't sufficient for the DOJ to pursue damages or criminal sanctions, and the SBA had insufficient personnel to do due diligence in the certification process. But all of these factors emanated from the same basic problem, that the government had trouble showing a direct harm from having a large company do work that was supposed to be set aside for a small business. Arguably, the government could be said to have saved money when a large contractor actually performed the set-aside services. That all changed with the Small Business Jobs Act. Now there's a presumption of loss to the government based on the total amount expended on the contract. So in other words, it's presumed that the contract had no value to the government if the set-aside requirement is not complied with. For example, let's say there's a $10 million project and a large contractor uses a dummy corporation led by a figurehead 
uh, to win a job it ordinarily wouldn't have qualified for. Previously, that penalty would have only been in the low five figures for each pay app. And if the job was performed adequately, there was no economic loss to the government on which to pin further damages. But now with the Small Business Jobs Act, that contractor will be looking at an additional $30 million of liability. That's certainly a substantial additional deterrent, as there's no longer any cost-benefit analysis to be done by a large contractor considering whether to skirt the rules. So if you falsely certify your small business status, it's not going to be worth it to do the job if you end up getting caught. But the last uh, specific concept that I want to go over is a safe harbor. The FCA does allow for innocent mistakes or inadvertent errors. Uh, if there's been a change in size or revenue limits shortly before a bid is given, that makes the contractor technically ineligible for the job. That may trigger the safe harbor. There's also some protection for a general contractor where it relies in good faith representations made by a subcontractor that it complies with the set-aside requirements. But obviously, those protections seem to go out the window if there is actual knowledge that the requirements aren't met. So a lot of the cases focus on whether the general contractor was an innocent player or in on the fraudulent scheme. Now, what are the risks for the surety? Uh, potential exposure for direct liability could entail taking over a project and submitting pay apps that carry forward the principal's prior uh, false certifications. Uh, not correcting the principal's prior errors and claims or certifications after the surety becomes aware of it. Could be submitting affirmative equitable adjustments or other claims for additional compensation that are inaccurate or overstated. Or it could be um, arguably providing bonds for a principal that the surety knows or has reason to know is submitting false claims or false statements. And with that, I'll hand over the virtual microphone to Cindy, who will talk about her experiences and the result in the Scola case, which particularly dealt with that last scenario. Hello, everybody. Um, so um, as is common, the Scola case was, in fact, a, a whistleblower key TAM action. Um, it was brought um, as a by a former employee of the sort of several contracting entities that were named as, as defendants. Um, in particular, the issue here was whether the one entity was a valid service-disabled veteran-owned set-aside business. Um, I would note that this uh, employee, uh, Mr. Skullick, uh, contacted a law firm that, that specializes in whistleblower actions while he was still employed by the defendants, and he did stay on for some time um, uh, as an employee for, uh, you know, what we believe was just trying to gather additional information to, you know, support his lawsuit as opposed to uh, any other um, reason. And in fact, he never did contact either the VA or the sureties uh, that were bonding to, you know, alert any of them to his concerns. Um, so, and he became aware of the issues or what he thought were issues in 2010, um, but did not file his suit until um, August of 2014. Um, and at that time, uh, his suit was, of course, filed under seal, which is the requirements under the statute. Um, and the allegations were that all of these defendants, including both the, the bond broker and two sureties had all conspired together to submit fraudulent bids to the government in order to get 
to be awarded government set aside contracts that were set aside for SDVO SB entities. Um, the government sort of dragged its feet for, for several months trying to get extensions, but ultimately decided that it would not intervene in the case. Um, that's not uncommon. Uh, it's pretty rare that the government intervenes in these types of cases. Um, they kind of like to let the private party do the work and just sort of sit back and get the benefit. Um, now, that's not to say that just because the government doesn't intervene that they don't actively take a role in these cases. Um, there is a DOJ attorney that gets assigned, uh, that gets served with copies of all things. In our particular case, um, the DOJ was was quite active in, in terms of um, our unsuccessful mediation and participated. Um, we really don't know, as it was a mediation, whether they were really in lockstep with the plaintiff in their beliefs, but certainly, um, you know, we were hoping to get the DOJ to understand, you know, the big picture and the impact on the surety industry if this was going to take place. And, and the, the effect of sureties not being willing to bond these type of entities if the government pursued this course of action. But unfortunately, um, you know, we really didn't have any success in, in getting the government to look at the big picture as opposed to the plaintiff who we knew was really, you know, there for the money. So, um, it, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, what effect this will have. But in any event, you know, because the case is under seal, you know, the sureties, we really didn't get involved until, you know, about a year later uh, by the time the case was unsealed and served. Um, so initially, um, as has been sort of well known, we moved to dismiss and that motion to dismiss was granted as to the sureties and the um, bond broker, uh, but the court did allow the plaintiff leave to amend uh, and did, frankly, in the opinion, sort of give the plaintiff a, you know, instruct, not, not direct instructions, but some understanding of what the plaintiff would need to do if they were going to amend their complaint. So what did happen is that, you know, the plaintiff alleged a bunch of facts about the sureties and the, and the broker having more knowledge and being on visits and various things um, that were then sufficient to, you know, survive a motion to dismiss uh, the second time around. And this certainly um, had, had a chilling effect on the industry you know, right from that, even though it was simply, you know, surviving a motion to dismiss, which is a, a fairly low standard. In this case, all, the, the plaintiffs brought all four types of claims that you can, can bring, a presentment claim, a false statement claim, a reverse false claim, at least as to the sureties, and, and a conspiracy claim. And, and really what the factual issues in this case really boiled down to was whether whether the, the service disabled vet individual was actually controlling his own company or whether it was really other individuals from the other uh, contracting entities that were making the decisions, preparing the bids, financing, uh, basically all aspects that would, would go into the issue of control. Um, because you really cannot have a, a set-aside contractor in name only. They, 
they have to be exercising the control that shows that they are really running their own company. You know, ultimately, as the case went along and there were various uh, decisions made, the court sort of crystallized that this was the case of a fraud in the inducement theory of liability, meaning that, you know, because the contract was procured allegedly through through fraud, that everything that that happened afterward, pay apps, everything were all tainted by that fraud. Because there was no issue here that the work was done. Um, my our particular client had five bonds. Um, all the work was finished satisfactorily. No payment, no no performance bond claims uh, paid. Subs ultimately paid. So so it all really had to fall down to a, a fraud in the inducement theory. Um, and you know, with fraud in the inducement, it's all in okay. You know. What did you put in the bid? Um, and those types of theories, because you can't really have, you know, as, as Tom alluded to, False Claims Act is not supposed to be for every sort of run-of-the-mill, you know, breach of contract issue. It's supposed to be, you know, a unique thing of, under very special circumstances that uh, because, you know, you're talking about very serious penalties here. So it's really not made for... Um, those type of run-of-the-mill minor contract breaches. So ultimately, you know, we, we filed for summary judgment and pointed out through all the years of discovery that the plaintiff couldn't back up the allegations that it had, he had made in his amended complaint about the sureties having these meetings and having knowledge of the alleged fraud. Um, and the court ironically somewhat did say, gee, we're sort of back to the original complaint that I dismissed. Um, unfortunately for the sureties, that was only after years of extensive um, depositions and summary judgment filings. Um, and I, I would point out one of the interesting things about this case is, you know, the government had certified this entity as an SDVOSB long before the sureties provided bonds um, and actually um, recertified these entities, uh, this entity, both in 2015 after suit was filed and, and 2016. So twice after this suit, uh, the government was aware of this suit, the, the VA had re-verified this as a qualified SDVOSB. Uh, you know, I think some of the problem on the plaintiff's side is, is somewhat of a lack of a fundamental understanding of what a surety does in underwriting. Um, they tried to make it sound like the surety is much more involved in the bid process than we all know in the underwriting part that a surety actually is. You know, we're, a surety is providing a bid bond at that stage. We are not helping them prepare the bids. We very rarely look at the all the qualifications and the proposals and all the all the stuff that comes from the government that the contractor has to look at in preparing its bid and making sure that it's qualified um, the surety is kind of looking at you know the company's finances the amount of the contract whether it's a contract that's sort of in the the principal's wheelhouse what the LDs are, but we're not 
generally, or not in the past, really looking at the, the technical requirements and that. And I think as much as the plaintiff tried to, to sort of push that that theory, um, he could never really bear it out with the fact that the charities are, are really directly involved in that process. Um, as we said in our case and, and under oath and depositions, we, we don't we don't underwrite the government's issuing of their verifications. Um, we don't have a duty to check that the government did its own job of, of verifying and auditing that this is a legitimate, whatever certified, you know, set aside entity, whether in this case, uh, a veteran, uh, but it could be a, an MBE, it could be a women owned business. We don't go back and, and underwrite that and check whether the government did its job properly. And ultimately here, um, you know, the court agreed that that the plaintiff had not shown any facts after discovery to show that the surety knew of any fraud, that the sureties knew of any of the regulations, or that the sureties had any duty to know the regulations because they were not the party that was contracting with the government. Um, but ultimately, it was a very narrowly fact-based decision. And one of the things that, you know, sureties has, have been doing over the ensuing years is, is getting more educated on some of these statutes. So it will be interesting to see going forward. It's almost like, you know, we've now said we've been trying to educate ourselves when maybe this decision is saying, you know, staying ignorant is maybe better because then you can say, I didn't know, um, I don't have a duty to know, and I didn't know. Um, so it will be curious to see going forward um, saying that you, you know, if you did know the regs and just saying, but I didn't have a duty to, to double check this, um, what that would mean in a case where there has been an education process. Um, I have always said that I think that the surety's risk is always much more in, in the takeover scenario, as Tom has alluded to, that you know, once you are the party submitting the payment applications yourself, um, you have a different duty. Um, you are not just some party that's uh, providing bonds to the party that's in contract with the government. You have then become the party in contract with the government. So if you have a subcontractor that uh, that your principal had that you think seems like it's a sham subcontractor uh, to meet some percentage requirement, um, it becomes a different thing when you're the takeover surety um, and you've dug into this and you now know, um, you know, that this sub raises, you know, alarms with you. So I think that um, much more so is is a real risk. Uh, in the future. You know, we, we did have the SFAA submit amicus briefs. Um, the opinion with regard to the sureties is very short. So, the you know, for whatever reason, the, the judge did not sort of decide to go into the public policy arguments of why this would be a bad decision and, and sort of stuck to the very specific facts of the case. So, um, you know, we will see what happens in the future. Um, obviously, we hope that this will discourage um, future parties from bringing sureties in, but, um, you know, 
I don't know that we, we really know for sure what will happen going forward, but I, we are getting close to the time, so I do want to uh, open this up for questions, comments, uh, since we are running out of time. Hello, this is Les Alvarado. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, we can. Go ahead. Oh, great. Um, look, so, so I take it that um, it seems like it's your advice that um, to the extent that the surety is not taking over a job, um, perhaps it would be more advisable just to try to stay away from uh, being knowledgeable um, or even uh, conducting further investigation during the underwriting process of the uh, um, qualifications of that uh, um, subcontractor that is coming in or, a, or that entity that is coming in as a as a, you know, let's say disabled veteran or whatever other qualification there is? I would say yes. Um, I don't, you know, I think the, the judge's decision has, has said that, you know, as the surety not being the party to the contract, that it doesn't have the duty to to learn all the myriad of regulations that may uh, apply to the various things that, that their contractor may be bidding for. So. <laughs> Um, I, I would say yes, that, that it's, it's sort of better not to, to undertake, you know, I, I mean, obviously, if a contractor would be silly enough to, to basically tell you that they were a fraud, then, then you have a right. different, different scenario. But no, I, I would say that even though I know that the industry has, or at least some portions of the industry have been trying to do that over the last five or six years while this case dragged on forever, that Right. Um, this opinion, this opinion, sort of says, you know, you don't have that duty. So, you know, why? Yeah, why, we shouldn't take the risk of then having to go in and say, oh yeah, well, I did study this, or you know, we hired somebody that that knows this. Then, you know, then the judge, a judge may look at that and say, but I mean, I, to me, I feel like you know, it's the government's job to verify these entities. They go back and they do audits, including supposedly on-site. Um, visits uh, when they re-verify these ent entities uh, and say yes you're still good and you know it's really not the surety's job to to go behind that and say you know oh gee somehow you know we're looking at the same information as the government and the government said they're good to go so how would the surety you know the plaintiff here tried to argue oh there were red flags well if they weren't red flags to the government why would they be red flags to the surety? So, but yeah, I don't see any reason given this decision that we need to be studying up on all these regulations at this point. If, if, right, right. Why, why, why to take on a, on a duty that the, the proper court is saying that you don't need that duty? Why to take on that duty? That's what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, I think, I think it could only hurt us at this point. Right. Well, but you, you also mentioned takeover, but uh, would, um, would that concern uh, be applicable also in a tender scenario? Um, I mean, I, I'm inclined to say yes. I don't know that I'm jumping I, I the gun mean, here, but I, I mean, when you're tendering, I, I mean, I think some of that would depend on on the circumstances, and I know that's a lawyer answer. It depends, but you know, in some tenders, you're doing reaffirmation agreements with existing subs. Sometimes you're not. So I think it would depend on the particular circumstances of, you know what you're doing if you have what what so far you think is some kind of 
you know, sham subcontractor that's really a pass-through and, and not a, a valid set-aside contractor, and, and you're reaffirming that subcontract and telling the, the tendered contractor to use that. <coughs> but if you're kind of in a hands-off approach in the tender, then I, I don't think that you've got a lot of exposure there. Um, unfortunately, yeah, then it's that, you know, that, that, that obligation in terms of signing the, the, the payment application then moves on to that, that tendered contractor. Right. Right. I, you know, it depends, you know, on how, um, on how that tender process took, took place, but I think uh, it's, it's close enough to the takeover, um, you know, scenario that might be worth, you know, being a little bit more concerned about, you know, who you tender and how you tender it. I get it. I've got a slightly different question, um, not necessarily related to the specific fact of this facts of the uh, Stolic case, but more in the sense of a claim professional that is conducting an investigation <clears throat> on a specific matter or a claim um, in which there is an allegation against the principal that the principal might have um, violated the False Claims Act by doing an action, submitting a pay app, um, and not using the funds as they were meant to be used during the construction process, and the claim professional finds that out during the investigation process. Um, I guess what is the surety's obligation at that point? Or so exposure. About exposure. something that would be that the principal has affirmatively certified that it's been paying its subs, and and this sub claimant is saying that the principal's been lying to the government and hasn't been paying its subs. Well, um, yes, that the, that the principal collected a number of pay apps and the funds were meant to be used for a specific purpose for the contract, but they were not. The funds were completely not used for that. They were used for other purposes. Um, and the claim is made, and the claim professional investigates the claim and finds that out. I mean, I think in those type of circumstances, I mean, again, it depends where things are with, with the job, um, I, I mean, certainly those are are certain times where sureties will often ask the government to, you know, start holding funds going forward. Whether you have to call out that this is a potential false claims allegation as opposed to maybe a prompt payment. Type well, no, I, I, I say I say this more in, because I heard the other counsel indicating that continue to conduct business with a principal that might have violated the law may spill over to the surety. That's when I heard that comment is what actually concerns me about. Well, yeah, that would be, I guess, a question of, are you going to continue bonding? You know, you've already issued certain bonds, but are you going to continue bonding them going forward knowing that, um, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, obviously I'm on the claim side and not the underwriting side. I, I, I would think certainly if a surety becomes aware of that um, on the claim side, they're going to let their underwriting 
uh, folks know that, and I would think that would certainly raise concerns about, you know, providing future bonds um, in that type of scenario just because of the, the principal's behavior uh, in general, um, okay. whether you have some do I mean, and, and yeah, and that I think it would impact your your willingness to issue future bonds uh, to that entity. I mean, what you already have out there, you obviously have to deal with, and you didn't have knowledge at that time. But uh, if you're going to continue to bond them if they've engaged in that behavior, um, yeah, it's 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 a possibility, I would think. Okay, I don't want to deviate too much from your uh, presentation, but I may give you I may be giving you a call separately. Okay. Okay. Uh, do we have any other questions? All right. I'm not hearing anybody, and I don't want to take up too much of your time since we've run over. Um, I just want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, October 10th, uh, at our usual time of 1230 Eastern Time. And also want to make you all aware, uh, hopefully you have already received invitations, but the 2022 Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference, of which our firm is a, a proud co-sponsor, is taking place on September 21st through the 23rd. Um, we are very excited to be taking place in person, woohoo, for the first time in three years. Um, and we are back at the um, Ocean Casino and Resort in Atlantic City. So we hope that you can come and join us. Um, Tom will be speaking uh, as one of our speakers uh, with Jen Rittenauer and talking about uh, issues to watch out for in surety indemnity agreements. And uh, Mike Stover, who is our, our leader on surety today, um, is speaking with Will Pierce of Arch Insurance on letters of credit. So, and as always, we will be giving CLE and CE credit. So we hope you can join us and we have good weather and it'll be great to be back in person again. So thank you, thank you all for your uh, attendance and we um, look forward to talking to you again on the next program and hope to see a lot of you um, uh, in Atlantic City in a few weeks. Thank you very much, appreciate Thanks, it. everyone, have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.